Few Christians always seem to be fighting amongst yourselves. You talk an awful lot about love, but you don't seem to practice very much of it. For all I seem to hear about is disputes and quarrels. What about all those church splits? You just can't seem to agree on anything. You have more denominations than there are varieties of hinds. And look at the history of Christianity. Weren't you burning each other at the stake? Some Christians that I've encountered could cause a punch-up in a telephone box. And look at what Christianity has done to this province of Northern Ireland with its history of the Troubles. Why should I believe in Christianity when you can't even agree among yourselves and when you're frequently at each other's throats? How are we as evangelical, Bible-believing Christians going to respond to this charge? And how can we possibly make this common objection to faith into a signpost to faith in Christ? I must confess, I think that this is one of the more challenging talks in this series. Uh, For it's certainly not immediately obvious how this accusation against Christianity can uh, somehow point people to the truth. And you better agree with me. (laughs) But I am going to try. The first thing I think that we should say is Yes, there is the need to apologize for where the church of Jesus Christ has got things so wrong. Obviously, abuses have been committed in the name of Christ, which are rightly condemned as reprehensible. Abuses like the burning of heretics or the employment of violence to advance or to defend Um, a theological or a denominational position. And moreover, it is lamentable when Christians resort to name-calling and character assassination in the context of disputes over church doctrine or over denomination. Indeed, we must be honest and admit that on occasions, individual churches have been torn asunder by factions and even over differences of personality. Forget about doctrine. Sometimes it's just over personality with some horrendous stories of Christians at each other's throats. And that's not always metaphorically at each other's throats. That being said, how can we then move on to defend ourselves against this objection that Christianity basically is not worth considering, given that its followers always seem to be disagreeing and arguing with each other. So here are some points of defense. Number one, 
Christians are fallen beings too. Just like the rest of mankind, Christians are imperfect beings. And indeed, Christianity is based upon the universal sinfulness of man. So it shouldn't come as a big surprise that sin characterizes its adherence. We are made of the same stuff as everyone else. We all have our pride and our selfish instincts. In an earlier talk in this series, um, one that, that, that Jeff did, um, we explored the charge that all Christians are hypocrites. And one of the points that Jeff made there was to ask the question, well, why limit the charge to Christians? We're all Christian and non-Christian. We're all guilty of hypocrisy to some degree or another. The fact is, we all, every one of us, every one of us is prone to fall below standards of righteousness. It will not be until we get to glory that Christians will be free of sin. So that's the first point. You know, Christians are imperfect people just like everybody else. Secondly, it is to be expected that there will be areas of difference and disagreement amongst and between Christians. For not only are Christians fallen beings, we are finite beings. Like everyone else, we are not pre-programmed computers, and we're certainly not omniscient. So it's to be expected that we won't agree on everything. And the reality is that all creeds and worldviews contain within them a range of opinion. Not all atheists think exactly the same thing. They, like everyone else, will experience lots of disputes and disagreements amongst themselves. Likewise, we know that there are varieties of belief within all world religions. You've got different forms, multiple forms of Hinduism, for example. You've got different branches of Islam, the Sunni, the Shia, and so on. After all, we are dealing here with whole-of-life philosophies. So inevitably, all Christians won't be on the same page on every issue. To take just one example, some branches of Christianity will put more emphasis on man's free will in the matter of salvation as against divine election in the matter divine sovereignty in the matter of, of uh, salvation. And there are going to be, and we know this, there will be differences over what is the correct mode of baptism, for example, or what is the correct form of church government, or over the exercise of spiritual gifts, or on the specifics of eschatology, that is the doctrine of the end times. And indeed, the more we move away from the absolute fundamental core of Christianity, the more we should expect that there will be differences of theology and practice. 
It is simply naive to expect there to be completely complete homogeneity among the Christian community across time, geography, and culture. Differences of opinion, that's just part of the warp and woof of community life. And sometimes differences can be a good thing, for it is through debate that we may see the error of our own position and become better aligned with the truth. The third point of defense is that many of the lamentable things done in the name of Christ were committed by those who were only nominally Christian. They were Christian in name only. It is important to understand that just because someone or some group adopts the label Christian doesn't necessarily mean that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Indeed, if they had so, then they wouldn't have done what they did. Think of the history of our own province, Northern Ireland. Think of the actions that were taken under the banner of For God and Ulster, which were anything but Christian in origin or spirit. Moreover, it's the reality that once the church came under the aegis of the state, it adopted methods at variance with true Christian doctrine and practice. We know that the established church became widely corrupt during the Middle Ages, headed up by some very unsavory and, can I say it, unchristian characters. And some of the methods adopted by the church were literally a cruel distortion of the way of Christ. Think of the horrors of the Inquisition, for example. Furthermore, what on the surface might have seemed to be a religious war may have been religious in name only. Much more a war over territory or over national identity. Northern Ireland comes to mind again. And today, there are those who do great despite to the name of Christ, who drag his name through the mud, whose profession of faith in him is to say the very least, Highly suspect. Number four, account must be taken of the seriousness of the issue at stake. Surely, when it comes to considering the passions that have sometimes been displayed amongst Christians over doctrinal differences, some allowance should be made for the gravity of the subject. Because we are not talking here about, say, which political party is best suited to government. Still less are we talking about or debating the relative merits of our football teams. And yet think of the steam that can be generated over something like that. No, when we come to matters of fundamental Christian doctrine... What is at stake is people's souls. We're talking about people's eternal well-being. And nothing under the sun is more important than that. 
So when Christians are debating issues like the place of good works in salvation or the mediatorial role of anyone but Jesus Christ or the priority of scripture over tradition, the stakes actually cannot be any higher. For what we believe is of paramount importance. So naturally, there is going to be impassioned debate. And fifthly, do not underestimate the role of the devil. I realize that some of my audience here may not believe in a personal devil, but the Bible presents Satan as real and very much alive and very active in this world and very, very active amongst believers. Satan is God's sworn adversary and he will do anything and everything he can to attack God's rule. One of his main tactics is to sow discord amongst God's people. Sometimes he will do that through persecution, prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, as the apostle uh, uh, Peter puts it in chapter 5, verse 8 of his first epistle. But at other times, he'll do it by spawning false doctrine, the things taught by demons that the apostle Paul refers to in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Right from the very off, from the very outset of Christianity, there have been counterfeit gospels designed to lure people away from the truth and thus deny them the hope of salvation. And particularly relevant to our topic this evening, Satan will do his level best to attack the unity of God's people, the unity of the church, to pit Christian against Christian and undermine the fellowship of brothers and sisters in the Lord, tearing churches apart by inciting division and disharmony. That is why we are exhorted in the New Testament to be on our mettle, to guard our unity, to work to preserve our unity, for it is under constant menace of attack. Believe you me, when Christians resort to tearing strips off each other, no one is more pleased than his infernal majesty, the devil himself. And before moving on to the second section then of this talk, how this objection can become a signpost to faith in Christ, it is worth mentioning perhaps that sometimes you'll hear people say, that if Christianity were really true, then God would ensure that there would be no disagreement amongst Christians over doctrine. After all, did not Jesus say that the Holy Spirit would guide you into all truth? John 16 verse 13. But we need to be very careful and wise here. This was a promise that Jesus made to his closest disciples, to those who would go on to become the apostles of the church. This was a small band of followers whose words would indeed be inspired by God and whose words 
would become the, funda- the foundational doctrine of the church. To extrapolate from this and say that all of us, every single one of us, is going to agree on every single church doctrine is a step far too far. We invite the Holy Spirit to convict us of truth, but we are not inspired apostles. And we need to be humble enough to admit that we can sometimes get the wrong end of the stick or that we are maybe uh, potentially wrong that, and maybe we rethink our views on so, some of these uh, matters. So let's switch gear then. Here are now some ways in which this objection can potentially point someone to faith in Christ. And I think there are four points this time. First of all, there is actually a pretty clear bedrock of core biblical doctrine. Whilst I have admitted that there is a lot of disagreement over aspects of the Christian faith, the actual core of biblical Christianity is rather straightforward. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners like you and me. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on Calvary's cross for our sin. On the third day, he rose from the dead. All who repent of their sin and put their trust in him as Savior and Lord receive forgiveness and will live eternally with God. That is the message of Christianity, of biblical Christianity in a nutshell. And if you're prepared to read the scriptures for yourself, then I'm confident that you'll agree that those are the fundamentals. So don't listen to the voice of those, whether outside or indeed within the professing Christian community, who want to reinterpret this creed. Stick with the historic Christian understanding. At its core, it is not that difficult. Number two, the fact that there is division over doctrine and division that is not always confined to secondary or subsidiary matters can actually be taken as corroborating evidence for the truth of Christianity. Let me explain. We have seen that we are forewarned that there will be a satanically inspired attack on the truth. Jesus declared, watch out for false prophets. They will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Matthew 7 verse 15. Likewise, the apostle Paul warned the leaders of the fledgling church at Ephesus, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Acts 20 verses 29 to 30. And the apostle Peter joins the chorus. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, 
even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, 2 Peter 2 verse 1. The existence of heresy, whether in the early church or today, think of the poisonous ideas emanating from so-called progressive Christianity, is precisely what we should expect in the light of Jesus' and his apostles' warnings to the church regarding false teachers and false doctrine. It's to be expected, folks. Thirdly, the church of Jesus Christ is actually the greatest social organization on earth. I'm aware that some people might think that up to this point, I've actually conceded too much ground to Christianity's critics, so I do hope to correct any imbalance. For it is the church that is God's new humanity that has done more for society than any other social organization. And it is within the church that we find a level of social harmony not found anywhere else on earth. It was Christendom that did so much for the place of women, children, and the destitute. Schools, hospitals, orphanages, welfare. The church was the prime mover in changing Roman society. But also, it was within the early church that men and women, slaves and masters, rich and poor, and a multiplicity of racial and ethnic groupings found a unique oneness. Thus the Apostle Paul could write to the church in the Roman province of Galatia and declare, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And remember that in Jesus' day, there was a huge antipathy between Jews and Gentiles, huge antagonism between Jews and non-Jews. Yet they became one body in Christ, brothers and sisters in the Lord. That was an incredible revolution that took place in uh, the, the period of the Jesus in the early, early church. It was a really, really big deal. And today, the church is a truly global organism that brings together people from every continent every ethnicity, and every social class. So yes, Christians may be at loggerheads on various issues, and yes, some have acted in a dishonorable way, but let us not tar everybody with the same brush. And it is certainly my experience that the church to which I belong, Castlereagh Fellowship, is a shining example of genuine brotherly love and affection. And the Church Universal is an organization to which belonging brings me an enormous sense of affinity to people all across the globe. I have brothers and sisters right across the world. They are part of my family. Tell me any other organization that produces such unity in the midst of diversity. My last point 
is the most important of all. And that is, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. This is a plea to the skeptic to judge Christianity first and foremost, not by what Christians are like, but by what Christianity's founding figure is like. In character, Jesus is the most beautiful person who ever lived. Indeed, the only truly sinless person the world has ever known. With him, there's nothing but holiness and perfect love. Even Jesus' enemies, when they were being honest, were forced to admit that he was without sin and he was innocent of all trumped-up charges. For Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he is the one who died to bring you peace with God and to create within you a heart of love, not only for your neighbor, but for your enemy. Whenever people keep their eyes fixed upon him, then their relationships with others will not be characterized by fighting, but rather mutual love and respect and concern. Look onto Jesus himself, and you'll see nothing of hatred but holy love. So, if you are one of those people who dismiss the claims of Christianity because you feel that all Christians do is fight with one another, I would beseech you to think again. Yes, there is much amiss in the church. And yes, Christians have behaved in some terrible ways. And yes, we all have our faults and failings within the church. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Recognize that there is much good done by the church. And there are many, many, many fine Christians who are peacemakers and want the best for this world. And ultimately, decide upon the merits of the Christian faith on the basis of Jesus himself. And if you do that, then I'm confident that you'll see that he is fully deserving of worship. And any concerns you have over the behavior of his followers will pale into insignificance. Christians are always fighting each other. If that claim is your only grounds for rejecting Jesus Christ, then in a day to come, you will encounter him as your judge. And he will ask you, why did you look at others ahead of myself? And you will be speechless. So I urge you to reorientate your focus now. Look on to Jesus and accept him as your personal savior and Lord whilst you have the God-given opportunity to do so. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.